Are you to Luke chapter 20 yet? I really, 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 really want to get to verse 17 and 18. But before we can get there, we got we to gotta do a couple other things. Um, we got to set this up. Let me tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Thanks. Um, I, I want to tell you a story about one of the dumbest things I've ever, I ever did as a teenager. And I did some dumb things. Let me tell you. But this was probably towards the top of dumb things. Um, I, I, it, was, it was a night... I think it was like a Friday night, Saturday night, and I'm driving on US 20. It's maybe, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock. I'm, I'm heading home, I'm heading towards Middlebury, heading home. And I knew, though, I knew that a friend of mine was going to be coming from Middlebury. He had already taken someone home, and he was coming back. So I knew at some point, now this was 30 years ago, and traffic wasn't as busy as it is now on US 20, especially at 10.30 at night, you know? So I knew that at some point, I probably was gonna pass this friend of mine. And, um, and so uh, let me tell you this story about the time I pulled my friend over. <clears throat> okay, so, so, so it was nighttime, and he's coming from the, and I, I'm coming, heading towards Middlebury, US 20, and I'm heading to it, and all of a sudden I see this car pop over the, and I look, and it's got the, 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 the lights, and I thought, I'm positive that is him. And I, I, I don't want you to think that I'm building this up. It really was him. I just want to tell you. And I knew it was him. And so as soon as he passed by, the guy that was in the passenger seat and I, we just, I think we had the same mindset. We're just like, I need to do something here. And I thought, I'm going to pull him over. And so just like a police officer, I just, I whipped it around. And I started, I gunned it, I floored it, and I, I was on his tail in no time. I started flashing my lights. I thought, I wonder if this will make it pull over. It did. And so, and so sure enough, sure enough, I'm not saying anyone should do this. 30 years ago, it was stupid. Today, it is even more than stupid. I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking about what the ramifications could be at this point if I got caught. And sure enough, I pulled my friend over. He pulls over. I turn my brights on, shining in his mirror so he can't tell it's me. He thinks I'm a cop. And so I'm sitting there laughing my head off with my friend for about 30 seconds. And finally, I get up there and I walk up to the window, knock on the window, and he rolls it down. This is cranking a window, by the way, for those of you that don't know. No buttons there on the old Nissan or Toyota or whatever he had there. He's like, and he turns around, he's like, oh, oh. Now, this guy's a teacher at Concord High School, and that gives it away to some of you who know who I'm talking about. But I'm not going to mention his name, but I can tell you this. He was absolutely stunned, and I was absolutely loving it. It was it was marvelous. Why do you share that? Can I, it, it, that was probably the first and only time my friend was ever pulled over by someone other than a police officer. And he was pulled over several times, as was I. Uh, we both ended up taking um, a defensive driving class, not at the same time. His was in the 80s. He got to sit by Sean Kemp. Some of you know who Sean Kemp is? Yeah, he went, I didn't have Sean Kemp in mind. That was several years later. Um, but, uh, but so I was probably the, the only time that he ever got pulled over by a friend. But, you know, here's, here's the point I'm getting to, which really, it's a, a lot better story than how it fits to our message, but I wanted to share it. Um, I had no authority. <laughs> I had no authority. I couldn't ticket him. I couldn't, I couldn't turn him in because he only had one headlight. I couldn't say that he was speeding. I had no authority to do anything. I didn't even have the authority to pull him over. That was his own 
fault there, and um, uh, that he allowed me to do it. But this is what I want you to get. As we, as we open up Scripture today, um, I was lacking authority. That's how I'm desperately trying to connect that illustration to this message. But that's the question they had about Jesus. They said, Jesus, you're pulling people over. Whose authority do you have? No, it wasn't that. It's like, Jesus, you're riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Like, huh, like you're the Messiah or something. Yeah. They're like, what authority are you doing? What authority are you living, saying? What authority are you healing people? What authority are you doing this out of? That's the first part of chapter 20 in the book of Luke. And then, as we continue on, um, what we see in that first part, I shared this message back in November, you have to go back and listen to it, but uh, Jesus just kind of riddled them and just kind of just pushed it off and said, then I'm not gonna answer you, but then he goes on to answer them through a parable. That's what I wanna talk about today. As you look at verse nine, what, what I'm gonna do is Jesus teaches this parable, this story to try to prove a point, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna on, on one hand, I'm gonna tell you what the parable is teaching, and then I'm gonna connect the dots as we go through the parable. So let's jump in. Ready? Verse nine says this. He went on, oh, grab the notes in front of you, will you? The notes are in the, in the seat back in front of you. If you grab that, follow along. Make notes of what I say, as well as what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart as I'm speaking through this, and you'll be glad you did. Verse nine, he went on to tell the people who, with this parable, a man planted a vineyard, he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Let's talk for a second. We'll start with the fact that there's a man. There's a man who is the landowner. This is the person who owned this land. So, uh, so what, 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 who, who was this landowner in this parable? There's a parable that says this, land, this guy owned land. Who was this landowner? Well, let me just fill this in in your notes, will you? Fill this in your notes. The landowner was God. The landowner was God. And what he did is he rented his land out, and, and, and so they could cultivate it for him, those type of things. I'll get there in a second. But can I just remind you that God is our landowner, that God owns it all. The Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? Everything you see, your house, your stuff, everything in this community, ultimately it's all God's. And he just allows us to be a steward of all that we have just let's never, ever, ever forget that. And so he's the, he's the landowner, and then what's, what does he own? It says here he planted a vineyard. So this landowner put all the work into the vineyard. He's, he's building up, on, and then he goes away for some time. So what is this vineyard? Well, in this, um, in this parable, and in a general sense, let me just say this. In a general sense, it's all of creation. It's all of us. We're all a part of the vineyard. But in this parable, it's really talking about the nation of Israel. Fill that in, will you? The nation of Israel. It's talking about the Jews. So, so um, uh, something interesting is, is as Jesus is teaching this, look at me. As Jesus is teaching this, there's this crowd, right? There's this crowd that he's teaching. There's these people. And then we know this, there's the religious elite as well. What does uh, verse two, uh, like I said, one say? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. So all these religious elite are a part of the crowd. That's important. We'll get to it. But he's teaching all this crowd. He's teaching this, the religious elite. And all of them, most all of them were Jews. So when, when they hear the thought of vineyard, they instantly, I think most of them would have connected it. 
Like, um, because you go back to the Old Testament, and G, uh, God would often refer to his people as a vineyard. You can go to Isaiah chapter 5, you can see that. You can jump all the way to the New Testament. When Jesus, in John chapter 15, do you remember? Um, uh, talks about abiding in the vine, and, and, and Jesus used it. So when, when, when they heard that idea of a vine, they would have connected, oh, I think he's talking about it. Um, it would have made a whole lot of sense even to that whole crowd. Kind of like if you see a bald eagle in the United States, what do you think? Well, well I'm proud to be an American. I mean, you think well, it represents America. If you're Canadian, you see a maple leaf, and it's like, hey, that's Canadian, eh, hoser? And, and, uh, <laughs> and any Canadians here? Forgive me if I just, I, it's, again, teenage years, strange brew. It's a dumb movie, but uh, I picked that up. That's about all the Canadian I speak. Um, so, so that's the story, though. This is the story that, that Jesus is sharing. God is the Father who owns the vineyard and the nation of Israel in general and the people of God in particular. We need to be cultivated, fruitful people that are blessing other nations. Okay, Ooh, we're doing good. Now go to verse 10. Go to verse 10, will you? At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So let's just stop right there. Let's just stop right there. So we, we see that um, uh, the vineyard owner, who was God, what did he have? He had some servants. He had some servants that he was sending out and saying, hey, it's time to collect, right? It's harvest time. So they were harvesting the, the, uh, the stuff from the vineyard and taking stuff off the vines. And so part of the idea here is, is to pay their rent. They would give a portion of whatever they harvested. They'd give that back to the landowner, right? And so it's harvest time. So it's harvest time. So he sends his servant, the owner, God, if you will, sends the landowner, sends servants in. And, and, and every single one of them, they beat up and then they toss out. Well, in your notes, check this out. Who are those servants? Well, so servants in the, in the parable are really the Old Testament prophets. If you, if you take time to study this and look at this, you'll see everything I'm saying, it just, it, you kind of connect the dots. It's like, wow, that makes a whole lot more sense now that I know who represents what. You see, over the centuries, God would send his servants to his people God would send his prophets, and they would prophesy. You read through the Old Testament, and you see all these prophets. And God would send Isaiah and Jeremiah, and send them out. Prophetic, just go, call my people back to me. And then what would they do? Often, they might repent for a short time, but then they go right back to their other gods, right back to doing sinful things. And so in the, in the parable, what we see is the servants are being sent to collect, but... Um, uh, in, in, in reality, what Jesus is trying to point to them is, is I would send my prophets. And then there were the tenants. Um, so at harvest time, verse 10 says, he sent a servant to the tenants. So there's the servants, the Old Testament prophets, but then there's the tenants, the people that live there. It's not just the, the, the generalized vineyard, but the tenants. Why is this? Just follow me here. I know I'm saying a lot of specific things that might be going, but try to keep them between the ears here and let's connect some dots here. The tenants... Were, were these religious elite, were these religious leaders. They were sinful, religious people. These would be those people who keep fighting with Jesus throughout the story of the Gospel of Luke. 
Have you noticed throughout the Gospel of Luke, there was a season at the beginning where people were like, who is this Jesus? But really quick, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those, most of those, most of those people who are very religious elite, the religious leadership, what would they do? They started to hate Jesus because he was coming, he was entering in on their turf. He was taking over. He was taking the spotlight and putting it on him and not on them. He was saying things that they didn't like. And the story of these tenants is, is a lot like rent, renters modern day. I don't know if you've ever rented something out. Maybe you have a house or a home that you rent out or, or uh, something else that you rent out. You, you rent it out and you expect to what? To be paid and that that thing is going to be taken care of and, and whatever. And, but you're going to be paid on a regular basis. But the problem is every time a servant was sent to collect the payment for the rent, what happened? They'd beat them up and toss them out. Beat them up and toss them out. Oh, and, and as Jesus is saying this, you read the, the passage, the whole crowd, they're like, this is horrible. I mean, eventually we'll get there, but this can't be. There's like, who would beat these people? Three servants in a row, and who are these tenants that they would be so evil, so rotten, that they wouldn't actually pay their rent? So the whole crowd is, is getting stirred up. They're starting to feel like that. If you put yourself in this passage, and then you've got the religious elite who they are starting to connect the dots even further, and they're like, wait a minute. He's talking about us. And so those, those religious leaders are starting to get angry and angry, and the crowd's just engaged. In fact, the last part of chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, this is what it says. All the people hung on Jesus' words. This crowd, was they were already, Jesus was an amazing storyteller. And as he's telling the story, he is pulling this crowd in. The angst is building. All these, all these people, these servants came in. They get beat up. Servant comes, beat up. Servant comes, get beat up, tossed out. Jesus is building this up. And, and, then, and then he's turning this focus to the tenants, the people who, who were the renters. They were the ones that were doing this. And we know that what Jesus was trying to say is it, it's, it's the religious leaders over here that are causing this to happen. The story is told that there's a piece of land that's very fruitful and some tenants come and they rent it and then they don't do anything appropriately. Uh, and so these tenants, the religious elite through this parable, they don't give anything back to the landowner. So they're stealing, they're greedy, they're stingy, they're selfish, they're thieves. Maybe like some of us and like some of you and me. So this is a condemnation on false religion. And it's a condemnation on corrupt religious leadership. And this would be the story of the wicked tenants. And so then you get to verse 13. Look at it, will you? Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out the vineyard and killed him. Let's stop right there for a second. So the owner, the landowner, God, decides, I'm going to send, the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son. In fact, the King James Version says, my beloved son. That's what the parable says. Now let's go to what's Jesus really saying. Have you connected it yet? Jesus is the son, right? So fill that in your notes. The son is Jesus. 
The son is Jesus. And so the landowner says, there's no way they're going to beat up and hurt my son, my own flesh and blood. They've got to honor and respect and more than that. So he sends it. What, what some commentators would say is when, when uh, in the story, the reason why Jesus said it this way is that when, when they saw the son coming, what the idea would have been is that, well, if the son's coming to take care of business, then dad must be dead. Because in this context, that's the way it typically would be. If the father's dead, he sends his son, or excuse me, the son comes to take care of business. And if the son comes to take care of well, if we take that son, beat him up, kill him, and take care of him, then this land goes to us. Ooh, some believe that's, uh, that's why they said. But the, ultimately, what you and I have got to think, what, what person is in his right mind would think, if I kill you, then I get to keep your land. Am I right? I mean, just think about that. Yeah, that's precisely the situation that Jesus described here. Jesus said that these vicious, unruly tenants actually went so far to kill the owner's son, wanting to inherit things. Jesus' listeners, those in the crowd, they must have been shocked. But the irony here is Jesus was referring to how Israel had treated God's prophets And how they were soon going to treat God's son. Yet they still thought they could have God's inheritance. Just let that sink in for a second. In the parable, these people thought, we can kick the prophets around, beat them up, throw them out. When the landowner sends his son, we can kill him. And we don't have to accept him. We don't have to accept what he says but we can still have our inheritance. And I just, just real quick, just correlate, does this look like any of us or anyone you know or anyone in our community or anyone even in our nation? That man, we, we want truth and justice and we want what's right, but yet we don't want anything to do with Jesus. You go to someone and say, hey, aren't you kind of glad that our law says you can't kill people? Oh yeah, murder's horrible. Where'd that come from? Hmm. The Bible. How, aren't you glad that someone can't just enter into your house and just take whatever they want and walk away? And, and isn't that great? Um, aren't, you, aren't you glad that you have that? Where did that come from? Hmm. Well, actually, it came from God. It came from the Bible. I mean, for, and I know some of you, you may want to debate this, but I'm, I'm just going to speak truth today. Bottom line is, for anyone to look at our nation and say that we weren't built on Christian godly principles, you're missing it. It's revisionist history because it absolutely was. Now, whether you choose to follow Christianity or not, that's on you. But you can't get away that our law was built on the Ten Commandments, that our law was built on the Bible. But this is what many in our nation would say is that, well, I'm thankful for all of this. Um, but I don't want anything. What? And then you say, well, what, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God? <gasps> you, that is so wrong. I can't believe you'd even say that. You're, you're, you're just, and they start off all these ick, ick words like homophobic and, and godophobic and uh, whatever else, phobic, and, and they start throwing all these names at you that this is what you are. You think that's the only way you're just, they want, they want all the inheritance and the blessing. But there's one thing that they're missing, and that's Jesus. And that's the most important piece of the puzzle, is Jesus, right? I don't even know which, which American patriot it was. 
that said it, I should have gotten it, but it just popped in my head here. There really is, our, our, our republic, our democratic republic was set up to be run with, uh, um, with Christianity. And if you take Christianity out of our, the way we've set up our government, then what's going to happen is it's going to fall flat. And my concern is, is that what, that's what we're seeing right now. And I, I know I don't say anything to you. I, I know you realize that, but that's my concern where we're at right now as a nation. But there are people, this is the point I want, I want you to get. There are people that are trying, that want the blessing of what Christianity brings. They want the inheritance of that, but they don't want Jesus and it doesn't work. And that's what we're seeing right here is they didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. And so as, as, you, as you take a look at this, the son obviously referring to Jesus. And with these words, I think it's interesting. Oh, let me, let me point this out real quick. Or I know you're gonna be as excited as I am. What was, what was the question? What were they asking Jesus? Said, where do you get your authority? That's the original question, right? Where do you get your authority? And in a roundabout way through this, Jesus is saying, I get my authority from the Father. In the parable, God sent his son. In real life, God, uh, the, I should say the landowner sent his son. In real life, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come. And so through this parable, Jesus is answering their question, right? Jesus is answering their question that I am sent of the Father. That's where my authority lies. So, uh, so put yourself in this situation just for a second. This is, this is all about to happen as Jesus is on his way to the cross. What day is it? It's Tuesday. On Friday, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. But it's Tuesday, one of the last days of ministry for Jesus. And he is, he's really, he's prophesying. And this crowd, I don't think they got it. But these religious leaders over here, oh, they got it. And Jesus is trying to point out and in a sense prophesy through this parable. This is what's going to happen. The son's going to come and they're going to beat him. They're going to beat him up and they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. And so Jesus is, is teaching. Can you just imagine just being a few days from being crucified and living through this very parable? When the Bible says that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that's the Bible's way of saying that you... I, my sin, my iniquity, put him on the cross. The blood's on my hands. This includes myself and all of us. The blood of the beloved son is on our hands. Think about it. How would you respond if someone murdered your son? Think on someone that has done evil against you for years rebelled against you, stolen from you, taken advantage of you, ignored you, harassed you, talked evil against you. People you've sent to try and work it out were just harassed, maybe even beat up and murdered as we see in our parable. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I did it into my arm. I thought that's going to make it a whole lot better, but it didn't work out well. Fauci would be so happy with me. I was like, this. <laughs> people you've sent to try and work it out, they're not even sent back. They're beat up. This is the story of the perspective from God. And some of us, 
Let me just say this. Some of us, we've read the wrong books, we've listened to the wrong teachers and the wrong people because you hear me say this today and you're saying, God is gonna judge me? That doesn't seem right. God gets angry? That doesn't seem appropriate. There's a hell for people who don't apologize and repent of their sins. That seems a little bit like an overreaction. And that, my friends, just shows how wicked we really are. That we can look to God and say, God, who are you to judge me? That's what Jesus is trying to point out here. These wicked tenants are, they, in the parable, they beat up and they killed the son. But in real life, they're getting ready to kill the son on a cross. Look at verse 15, the second part. When the people, oh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, when the people, no. Yeah, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So what's this vineyard owner gonna do? What is God gonna do? He will come to kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. We'll talk about that in a second. But when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. When the people heard this, the crowd, not the religious leaders, but the crowd, never This can't happen. This isn't right. The people sensed the horror of the story that the the landowner would actually send his son and these tenants, they're not going to pay rent back, but on top of that, they're going to kill the guy's son. The religious leaders understood this. And look at verse 19. You got your Bibles there? Look at verse 19. This is their response. The teachers of the law... And the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They knew Jesus was, was talking about them, but they were afraid of the people. Let's keep going. Jesus, Jesus said that uh, um, these wicked tenant farmers would be killed, but that the owner would give the vineyards to others. God's judgment on the Jewish people who rejected him would result in the transfer of privileges or ownership to others, namely the Gentiles. I know for some of you, you're like, what? You can go back to December 27th. I shared a message here. It was about this dude in the book of Acts named Cornelius. Acts chapter 10. Do you know he was one of the first non-Jews to get um, regenerated, to get saved? How awesome is that? And we, I, I shared the story about that from Acts chapter 10. You can go back and listen to that. But this is Jesus pointing to the fact that, listen, he knew that the Jews, there's many of them. Some would, some would receive him, but many of them wouldn't. And so that's why he said, I'm gonna take this land and I'm gonna give it to someone else. He's pointing to the fact that he's gonna take the gospel and give it to the, the Gentiles. Now let me just sum this up with verse 17 and 18 because this is where I really want us to land. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has been the capstone or the cornerstone, depending on your version, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is saying, ESV, I like this translation. I think it's on the screen here. But he, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this, uh, the stone that the builder has become the, the cornerstone? Jesus is saying, the Father's away in heaven. He sent me to earth. And this all is the vineyard, and he sent me to the nation of Israel, to, 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 um, to the supposed people of God. And you, all of you, are about to murder the beloved son, just like you have the prophets. And, and they say, surely not. 
And Jesus says, no, this is how it's going to look. In fact, he quoted Psalm 118. The interesting thing about this passage is every time they would come, <coughs> was that better? Every time they would come they, to, uh, to the temple yearly to make their sacrifices, they would, as they came into Jerusalem, the Jews would actually quote the 118th Psalm and portions of it during Passover. The religious leaders had been reciting this passage for years without understanding or applying it. In Jesus' quote, the son of the parable became the stone of the prophecy. The tenant farmers of the parable became the builders in the prophecy. Rejecting the cornerstone was dangerous. A person could be tripped or crushed. What do you mean? Okay, so Jesus used this metaphor to show that one stone can affect people different ways, depending on how they relate to it. Although Jesus had been rejected by many of his people, he would become the cornerstone of many others. And that's what we call Christianity. Although Jesus had been rejected and defeated by his own people, the Jews, God would raise him from the dead, seat him at his own right hand. Nothing can thwart the, the purpose of God. At the last judgment, God's enemies will be crushed by this stone. Christ, the building block, will become the crushing stone. He offers mercy and forgiveness now, but understand this, people. There will be judgment later if we choose not to submit to the mercy and the grace of the Lord right now. So here's kind of the big idea. When you go to build something, you've got to get the right foundation laid, right? So... Um, when we think about a, a cornerstone, I know most of you have probably never built something out of stone, right? Um, so the way you would build this is, is you'd, get the, you'd want to quarry and, and build and, and just get that perfect cornerstone that would start the process. And if you put that in its right spot and it was the right stone and you built from there, everything else would fall into place. But if you had the wrong start, the wrong cornerstone, then it was going to throw everything off. <clears throat> I'm not a builder. I have been known to fix washing machines this week. Thank you very much. Thank you. I am not a builder, but that's what I understand. And so what I, what I understand is this, is that if a builder saw that this, this stone wasn't going to work for this foundation, for this thing, they would say, no, get this stone out of here. And I, I know I'm lifting stones and moving them, but these were probably heavy stones and some, some uh, theologians, some scholars would even say this is actually talking about the original temple that was built in the Old Testament by Solomon. And it, it, they would say this is an actual, this actually happened. But just get, the, get the, the, the thought of it. If a builder saw, here's the cornerstone, is like, eh, it's not a good stone. Move it, get it out of here. They take it back to the quarry and they get a few other stones. And so that stone is what? That's the rejected stone, right? I, I don't want that one. It's no good. It's not good. <clears throat> and they get some other stuff. This doesn't work. And then he's like, you know what? I think that first one that we rejected, that is really the one that we need to build on. And so they go back and they get that. And that's what this is saying. The stone that the builders rejected has become now the cornerstone. Do you follow that? Let me, let me explain this further. As they started constructing the thing, they, they came to realize that this oddball stone actually fits perfectly. 
You see, Jesus is saying, people thought I was odd. Oh, he, he wasn't even married yet. He's in his 30s. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, thinking he's all that in a bag of chips. I mean, he, who does this guy think he is? And Je- the people, they just say, look. And then he started talking. And he said things like, I and the Father are one. I mean, he, he says all kinds of things that people are just like, this doesn't make sense to me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, your Father's the devil. Jesus says all these things, and all these people are like, this guy's an oddball. So he's cast off to the side. Religious people, irreligious people, historians, sociologists, psychologists, they just like, no, I'm just going to toss this guy off to the side. And Jesus said, no, I am the chief cornerstone. I fit. I fit perfectly. And this is the big idea in your notes. One of the last fill in the blanks. It's not on the screen. You only get this from me, folks. Here it is. The big idea is this. Everything in your life has to begin with Jesus. Bottom line. I said everything I just said, even the story about pulling my friend over, just so we could get right here. Let's just, let's, let's just finish this up. In fact, even as we talk about the idea of our, our, our vision as a church is to go all in, right? Acts 2.42, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, to the breaking of bread, communion. Dive deeper into that. What that really represents is the cross, the resurrection. It's Jesus. The early church were devoting themselves to Jesus. They built themselves. They built their lives around Jesus. They didn't just add Jesus in. They built their foundation, their cornerstone was Jesus. You say, um, everything in your life has to begin with Jesus. You say, I want a great marriage. Start with Jesus and then build your marriage on Jesus. I want to raise a family. Start with Jesus and then make some babies. I want to have a business. Start with Jesus, then figure out your business. I want to overcome some addictions, some sins, some hurts, some trouble in my life. Start with Jesus and then work from there. Anything you want to do or, or, uh, or accomplish, let it start with Jesus. Don't let him be the rejected stone until later on and then bring him in. You built your life but you forgot Jesus, and now you're trying to find a way to slip him, in, slip him in. It doesn't work like that. You see, all in, Acts 2.42 means we build our lives around him. He's not an afterthought. This is, the, is what the cornerstone means. And I, So my challenge to you is, is just to think on that. Worship team, would you come? As they're coming, just listen, just focus on me. Some of us, we, we, need, we need to really honestly ask ourselves, do I need to dismantle much, if not all of my life, so that Jesus can be that cornerstone and I can build it back up? You know what? I'm trying to squeeze Jesus into my time, into my budget, into my life, rather than squeezing him in. What if he went first? What if my first priority was to get to know Jesus? What if my first priority was devotion to Jesus? And what if I built my budget off of that, my schedule off of that, my career off of that, my relationships off of that, my marriage, my children, my parenting? What if I put him first? What if, as the Bible says, I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else I 
build? What if I started with Jesus? Some of you really need to consider what does it look like to just disassemble it all and start over with Jesus first. I'm not saying leave your spouse. I'm not saying, kids, I'm starting over. You're on your own. No, I'm saying, look in your spouse in the eye and saying, listen, I don't, I don't know as if we started with Jesus. I mean, I know both of us are following Jesus, but I, I'm not sure that we put our marriage on that foundation first. We didn't start that way. So what if, what if we try to dissect this and just kind of work things back and we put Jesus back at the first, seek him first about everything else? And kids, listen. Kids, I, I wanna tell you, your mom and I or your dad and I, we've figured this out. We haven't done a good job of building our, our family around Jesus, but we're gonna start. We're not gonna be perfect, but that's our goal. And you say, we're gonna, we're gonna rebuild this thing. What if we started there? God loves you. God wants your life to be fruitful. And, and, and back to this original analogy, he, he wants your, your life to be like a vineyard, life-giving, giving out. And you can't build a life where Jesus is not in your life or just a part of your life. He has to be the cornerstone of your life. And Jesus says, if you don't see me as a cornerstone and you don't build your life on me, then I become a different kind of rock to you. And this is, listen to me. You can either, either allow God to be your cornerstone or you can allow him to be your crushing stone. Because there's gonna come a time when you and I are gonna stand before the Lord and he, we are gonna be judged whether we gave our life, whether our name's in the, in the Lamb's book of life, whether we surrendered our life to him or not. So you can allow him to be your cornerstone or you can allow him to be your crushing stone. Jesus points out to the religious leaders through this parable that his authority does come from God the Father. And then he teaches all who were there on that day and all who are here on this day that he desires to be the cornerstone of your life. And so I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to give you an easy fix here, but I just want to tell you, this is where we got to start. And what a great time to start other than right now, 2021, start of the year. What if we make a commitment right here, right now, we make Jesus Christ the cornerstone. And let's start breaking that down, what that looks like over the next few weeks, can we? Just start praying about that. What does that look like for my marriage, for my finances, for every area of my life? What does that look like? This is where God wants us to be. Is God your cornerstone or is he gonna be your crushing stone? Because we will stand before God and give an answer. 